Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Jonathan Brown. You're most welcome back, sir. Uh, hi, uh, welcome hi. and assalamu alaikum and to everybody. And uh, uh, it's nice to be back. Although it's funny because I just saw you in person <laughs> in London. We did. Now we're talking like now. I don't even know if it's 20, maybe 24 hours later. Uh, now I'm in Washington, D.C. and uh, right. you're not. <laughs> I, I felt in particular embarrassed because we, we um, had an English sort of an English breakfast together and we had uh, vegan bait. Was it vegan bacon? These two strips of something. Yeah, on the it's, not, it's not going on my list of best breakfasts. But you know what? No. That's not the point. It was it was not about the food. No, but I felt embarrassed. You know, you got an American coming to London, and what did he get? He got this, this what in my view is disgusting vegan bacon. Anyway. But you know, actually, I went to um, Slough, and oh, yeah. they have a place called like Kashmiri Cafe. It's a big building, actually. It's not a little. It's a kind of big building with a park around it, and they have. Mm. Uh, I had a. I actually, the guy was kind of. He was like, "Oh, you think you're going to eat all this?" But I ordered full English breakfast and then a Kashmiri breakfast and wow. the they were both individually too big to eat on their own and so I you know I was really struggling but it was delicious so I had a delicious uh halal English breakfast so you you don't have to worry about that no the, the food was definitely halal although questionable um integrity anyway I'm gonna go there it was good to see you yesterday we had a fascinating conversation but back to uh today uh for those who don't know Jonathan Brown is uh, professor and our lead bin Talib chair of Islamic civilization in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in Washington. Is it Washington, D.C., where you are now? Yep. Yep. Cool. Um, he's the author of um, the following books, uh, Slavery and Islam. There we are. Um, this is a classic work, a uh, very um, seminal work. And this one, misquoting Muhammad, the challenge and choices of interpreting the Prophet's legacy. If you've got any non-Muslim friends, uh, I think it's a particularly good introduction to the subject. One of my favorites is this uh, second edition of Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World, because your PhD is in the subject. And this is your PhD, I think. Uh, canonization of Al-Bukhariya Muslim, the formation and function of the Sunni Hadith canon. So um, I recommend all of those. It's actually written also the, uh, the very short introduction to Muhammad, I think it's called, in the Oxford University yeah. Very Short Introduction series, which, again, is really great for uh, a general reader who doesn't know anything about Islam, I think. So uh, that's uh, that may not be an exhaustive list of all your books, but those are the ones I've read anyway. That's um, all. That's all. I mean, uh, I've read all your books. Um, this, this. Now, Jonathan has kindly agreed today to discuss his critically acclaimed new book. Yes, there's another one titled, here we go, Islam and Blackness. And what a striking cover that is. Uh, I think it's a, a very um, brilliant cover, book cover, actually. Uh, that's the size of it, um, newly published with some uh, very positive reviews indeed uh, on the back cover. Uh, one, for example, from Imam Zaid uh, Shakir, who's a professor emeritus now of Zaytuna College and other, uh, and other scholars as well. And I just want to read uh, just briefly what the dust jacket says on the inside front cover about the book. I assume the publisher wrote this rather than you um well, I, I wrote it oh you did okay oh, I, mean, so. I think i wrote it i think they say they i mean they what they do is they say can you write us what to say on the inside of the dust jacket and then i write uh, it for them they may check it and say you know this makes i mean they may it may some person 
person might write one that's lousy and they don't use it, but they've always used the ones I sent them. So yeah, no, yeah, this is uh, about you though. So it's in the third person. Um, it's commonly claimed you you write or it says that Islam is anti-black, even inherently bent on enslaving black Africans. Uh, Western and African critics alike have contended that anti-black racism is in the face of very scriptural foundations uh, and its traditions of law, spirituality and theology. But what is the basis for this accusation? Best-selling scholar Jonathan A.C. Brown examines scripture, Islamic scripture, law, Sufism and history to comprehensively interrogate this claim and determine how and why it emerged. Locating its origins in conservative politics, modern Afrocentrism, and the old trope of Barbary enslavement, that's a particularly common one on the internet, I notice, he explains how anti-black uh, blackness arose in the Islamic world and became entangled with normative tradition. From the imagery of blackened faces in the Quran to Sharia assessments of black women as undesirable and the assertion that Islam and Muslims are foreign to Africa, this work provides an in-depth study of the controversial knot that Islam that is Islam and blackness and identifies authoritative voices in Islam's past uh, that are crucial for combating anti-black racism today. So uh, that's the book, Islam and Blackness, the subject I wrote, of, I wrote all of that, except best-selling author, Jonathan Brown, I, I, everything. I probably just wrote this book does that. And then they yeah. <laughs> added that. Thank you for your honesty there. Yeah. You didn't write that bit. Um, that's okay. Um, so there's just something we need to get. We need to clear the decks on this first, Jonathan, if I may, some people might have an issue with the fact that a white guy, you uh, has written a book, titled Islam and Blackness. And I know there's something that came up recently when you were in London uh, a couple of days ago at SOAS, I think. And actually, this is something you address at the very beginning of your book, immediately, actually. What is your response? I mean, yeah, I've heard this a lot. Um, <clears throat> I understand people, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not angry at people for having this criticism. It's just that I don't think that it has anything to do with the book. Like, I mean, the... If I were writing a book about, you know, the experiences of black Muslims or, you know, even kind of getting into like the the, the fine grains or dynamics of anti-black racism in the modern world, like, you know, maybe my being a white guy is probably not helpful or doesn't give me some kind of, uh, you know, perspective that I need. But this book is about, it's a book of Islamic intellectual history, really. I mean, it's a book about how uh, Muslim scholars over 1400 years dealt with, you know, text and society interacted and then how uh, Muslim scholars dealt with their own legal and normative traditions in, you know, surrounding questions of like race and color in their society. So it's really, um, yeah, I mean, I just wonder like if I were, I mean, if I were like a black Muslim in the US, I'm not sure that would give me a lot more insight about what, you know, a text written in like ninth mm. century Baghdad is saying. I mean, it's it just sort of, you know, the, the only way that that would make sense is if there was some kind of trans historical unchanging thing called blackness. So that if you're 
black in America today, it's the sort of same as being black in Baghdad in the ninth century. And I think that it contradicts basically all the established understandings of race, which say mm. that it's not mm. some kind of essential thing that exists throughout time and space, but rather it's it's socially constructed. So I think mm. I think that the criticisms are kind of I mean, I, I think I understand someone's criticism if they think this is a book about being black and Muslim or about how mm. the challenges of being black and Muslim, but this is a book about the interaction between Islamic normative tradition. Mm. Let me just make sure my computer is not um, kind of ping every couple of minutes. Focus. Okay. Do not disturb. Um, so, but you know, that's not what the, the book is about. The book is, is, it's about, and we're, I mean, the funny thing is like, we're all foreigners to the past. So none, none of us is from the past. Yes. The past is foreign to all of us. Yes. I, I think, yes. I think it's interesting to think about like what these questions assume about the work. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, not to be kind of a, a pain about this, but someone could say, well, your book's called Islam and Blackness. So, you know, we're, you know, we, we have concerns about this. Okay, that's fine. I understand. I don't expect people to read the book, but you know, there is the, the blurb that you just read, which tells you what the book is about, which I think that if <clears throat> read this, I think they would, it would not, um, it would yeah. probably make sense why you could have, um, you know, uh, someone who's not like a black Muslim today writing it. Um, so, but I would also say that, you know, I mean, I might as well also use this opportunity to just say why I wrote the book. It wasn't like I, you know, it wasn't like I woke up one day and I said, Hey, you know, I really want to write about Islam and blackness or something. I mean, this mm -hmm. was, not, in fact, when I wrote the slavery book, the Islam and slavery book, people mm -hmm. would ask me, Oh, you know, you should write, um, you know, you should write kind of a book on Islam and race or something. And I yeah. said, no way. I, I mean, I said, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but what happened was in the summer of 2020, there was this debate, which actually I, I found out later is <clears throat> actually a recurring debate in some circles about that, that where some scholars like actual professors in the U.S. in academia were saying that Islam at its scriptural foundations in the Quran, the Sunnah of the Prophet, right, that there, it, the normative tradition of Islam <clears throat> is itself anti-black. Not, you know, Muslims are racist or something, but actually the scriptural mm. foundations normally <clears throat> are anti-black. Yeah. So I kept getting these emails forwarded to me from by or questions, people, my friend, you know, colleagues asking me like, hey, you know, there's this debate going on and someone's bringing up this hadith and this Quranic verse and this thick opinion. And do you have any do you have any responses to this? I, I'm trying to figure out how to respond. And I was like, oh. Okay, interesting. So I just kind of, I was like, okay, I'll look at it and I'll try and send you helpful information. Mm. And then I started to actually look into it and I, I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And then I started to, in order to answer those questions, I had to look at other issues. Those raised other questions, issues of context and history came up. And so before I knew it, I had a book on my hands and that's how. Yeah, it yeah. So it, it happened almost, not accidentally, but you had. Yeah, it, it actually was, it was entirely yeah. accidental. Right. And not, yeah, yeah, it was something where I, I didn't think, um, yeah, it was kind of, it was a bizarre experience. But I mean, that's sometimes how even the slavery book, it wasn't, I didn't intend really to do it. It kind of came up. But I noticed this, you, you do write books that tend to um, address these popular misconceptions or uh, uh, misunderstanding about Islam, obviously slavery and Islam being one. And, and this one, I, I know you, you told me before, you didn't, didn't choose the title of this, Misquoting Muhammad. Uh, this yeah. is kind of with reference to Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. But 
you know, the, 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 and, and you do push back against misunderstandings in this book as well on Hadith. And so you do have a history of, uh, of really tackling some of these red button issues uh, as they arise in our culture, even though you, you're not looking for them, they tend to find you perhaps. I mean, I think the, the, I think what it is, is that I'm, you know, like I'm Muslim. And I, I mean, when I come across these questions, you know, I also ha have these questions, right? So someone, yeah. when I see these, you know, Hadith or a fake opinion that mm. seems to be really shocking in the context of blackness, uh, I mean, I also want to know what's going on. So, I mean, I yeah. sort of, I, I think maybe one of the reasons I do this is that I, I am a, a member of the, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, curious readers want to know. I'm a curious reader. I want to know the answers yeah. of these, to these things as well. No, that, that's fair enough. Well, you touched on this um, briefly, but um, is, this is my next question to you. What is the argument of the book? And in fact, you have a section of your book. Uh, what is the argument of your book? So, so I have a section in my book called, I actually have this in all my books, I think, which is cool. Yes, this is true. The argument of this book. So yeah. if you really don't want to read the book, you can <laughs> read this section and it will tell you everything or it will give you a summary. Okay. I'll tell you everything. I give you a very, very brief summary. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read it. It's uh, it's mm. it's it is two pages exactly. Yeah. What page is it again? I can't remember where it is. Now. Page three and page page three to five. But it's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Uh, though a contested concept, anti-blackness is most succinctly understood as racism directed against people of sub-Saharan African descent. Stereotypes about real or imagined black Africans are nearly as old as historical records. From ancient Rome to medieval China, however, these stereotypes rarely stood out markedly in societies that were often cosmopolitan and where skin color played a less important role than other markers of identity. The notion that the rights and standings of people racialized as black African were determined by that racialization became pervasive only in the early modern period with the rise of the Atlantic slave trade and Europe's powerful colonial states. Um, the understanding of race, the, sorry, the understandings of race and blackness that formed in the West, particularly in the United States, have profoundly shaped global, shaped global discourse. They have forced a dualistic template of black and white onto social terrains from Mali to Karachi, which are often too dissimilar or complex for such a binary. They have bound black Africanness and slavery in an essential relationship when the two, when the link between the two has often been incidental, mm. and they mm. continue to insist that black as a mundane color descriptor cannot be separated from black as a negative metaphor, when no such essential relationship exists. Not everyone, everywhere, and particularly not speakers of African languages south of the Sahara, has collapsed blackness as skin tone and blackness as metaphor. Neither has aesthetic preference always entailed judgment of human worth. Not all descriptions of color is a prescription of value. In the West, Islam and Muslims have been particularly singled out as anti-black, an accusation emanating from a centuries-old Western stereotype of Muslims as slavers, as well as from contemporary American conservative culture and political agendas. Anti-blackness is rampant in much of the Muslim world, from North Africa to South Asia. It causes real pain that goes unrecognized but it does not originate in Islam scriptures or its system of law and ethics. Islamic civilization inherited stereotypes about black Africans from the Greco-Roman conviction that climate shaped both body and personality and from Judeo-Christian lore about Africans being cursed with blackness and enslavement. 
Though, prom though prominent Muslim scholars oppose these ideas as antithetical to the Quran, the bulk of Islamic tradition indulged and added to this body of material. While anti-blackness did not define the lives and destinies of people with darker skin tones, from Morocco to India, black African came to stand in for slave and correlate with inferior social status. The Sufi tradition, however, inverted this image, using it to represent the saint's journey from earthly subjugation to liberation through union with the divine. And it portrayed the black African as the pious and devout slave of God who taught and inspired his or her social betters. In Islamic law, particularly norms around marriage, when the correlation of blackness with low status and undesirability was recognized, it was as a social reality that law had to manage, not as a norm for it to protect. Whether in law or in how, sorry, whether in Islamic law or how black Africans have been perceived in other genres of Islamic scholarship, anti-blackness has been incidental, not essential. In law, Muslim jurists recognized that what blackness meant, whether it was attractive or unappealing, ended on where, when, and who was perceiving it. Negative stereotypes about black Africans in Muslim writings on geography and ethnology were often mirrored by stereotypes about Slavs and Turks. And the association of blackness with slavery and primitiveness, including in the writings of many black Muslims from the Sahel, ultimately turned not on phenotype, but on their locating blackness beyond the southern boundaries of the abode of Islam. Whether anti-blackness was incidental or accepted as social customs, however, leading voices of Muslim scholarship from medieval to modern times have rejected it and advocated vigorously for the Prophet's teachings that no race or tribe has any inherent value over another. As judges, jurists, and moral guides, Muslim scholars have had to balance a realistic accommodation of custom with their duty to enjoin right as heirs of the prophets. In light of the severity of the blight of anti-blackness today, it is clear that their duty as moral guides must be to promote an erasure of the color line. That's that section. Yeah, very eloquent. Um, I, I just noticed something in terms of the, the way you uh, express yourself in this, is that the word black itself, um, sometimes the word like black African is capitalized, the capital B, capital A, but other times you have a small B when the word black is. Yeah. Well, what's, the, what's the logic here in switching from capital to non-capital when you're using the word black? Yeah, so there's a lot of actually writing and debate around this in mm -hmm. kind of <clears throat> various academic fields in the U.S., uh, primarily in the context of kind of uh, Africana studies um, in the the U.S. kind of Atlantic world. Um, the so the 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 debate is 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 that black can mean different things. Uh, yeah. So if I say you know like this book cover is black, like that's just a color descriptor, right? Yeah. Um, if I say that uh, you know um, a person is black, well now I mean. I've never actually met anyone whose skin was actually this. Well, exactly. I mean, it's always struck me as this whole language of black and white. When I look at you, yeah. no, I'm not. Say, I'm also not. not you're, yeah, you're, I don't mean to be rude, but you're more pink, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. So when we when we use it to talk about people's features, yeah. um, now we're getting kind of into more of a realm of, of, of figurative description, and also not just that, but race, but but inscription, right? So. Uh, Somebody might, I mean, for example, languages in a, lo in a lot of languages in Africa, south of the Sahara, you know, if you ask someone, what's 
what color is your skin and your language, they'll say black, right? And that, that doesn't, they're just, that's just a description for them. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. But when you say, you know, when uh, a British person or an American person says someone's black or an Arab person says someone's black, uh, there's also other um, kind of um, connotations about that that come through history. Right. In addition, this is also very important, right? If you're like Herodotus, you know, we know the famous Greek historian from, um, from Allahumma says Muhammad, from- um, 400 BC? Yeah, uh, oh my God, he's not from Miletus. He's died for, he's from, um, it's today, it's Bodrum, Helicarnassus. Yeah, so he, in his, when he talks about um, Ethiopians being like black, he also mm -hmm. says like Indians are also black. So for him, blackness, and this is actually not uncommon in the kind of Greco-Roman tradition, but also in the, pre, in the early Arabic tradition, that blackness is not just something about Africa. It also in, includes like people who are very dark skin toned in Southern India, for example. Right. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's, it doesn't, this is important, right? So when we, when we say black in modern, you know, uh, kind of European linguistic traditions, and we're using it as a color to describe someone's phenotype, their 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 presentation, their physical appearance. <clears throat> we also, it's not just their skin color, right? We have associations about what their hair texture is, what their facial feature is, features are, right? So there's all these um, kind of stereotypical phenotype mm -hmm. ideas that come along with saying someone's black. So that's a, becoming suddenly a lot more complicated than just saying the color black of this book. And so the question is, do we want to uh, put a capital letter there to show that we're not, this is no longer just a neutral kind of normal color description anymore, but now we have other ideas about race and, and ethnicity and value and history and power coming into it. Then you take another step, right? Which is that some people will, you know, it's very common to find this uh, among scholars in Africana studies that uh, black can also mean, for example, if I, um, it's actually interesting. I, the, the, my friend giving me a ride to the airport yesterday is British Muslim. His family yeah. is uh, from Zambia. Okay. Yeah. I so, actually, actually saw you walking past with him to the car. Yeah, actually. Exactly. So he, yeah. he, um, when he, he went uh, to visit his fa family members in Zambia, they said, you're not, uh, you're not, uh, you're not black. You're white. They said to him, mm. it's nothing to do with his skin color. They meant like culturally, you're not from here. Like you're from, uh, white right? Mm -hmm. He just, just used the word. I think it's Mazumbu. I think is you're one of these like the word they use for white foreigners, right? Oh, right, right. So it was really funny because someone's <laughs> telling him he's not black, right? But in, in the UK, he's always being told he's black. Yeah. So the reason why is. For uh, some people, and this includes, by the way, some, you know, scholars and activists in, let's say, uh, black American culture or anti-racism mm. anti uh, anti activism in the U.S., where they'll say that black with a capital B isn't is really for it's not for people in Africa, from Africa. It's for people who are part of this diaspora community that had the experience of enslavement, of being taken away, of growing up in these kind of um, uh, almost like Creole communities that have different cultural and racial uh, kind of inputs into them in the 400 years or so since the, uh, or four or even 500 years of the Atlantic 
slave trade and the, the European enslavement of Africans and then exploitation of their labor in the Americas and then the growth of commu- of these diaspora communities in the Americas, right? So in this case, black would mean, uh, so someone would, you remember when President, uh, President Obama was, yeah. there was these debates about whether Obama is black or not. Mm-hmm. People thought, what the heck is this? I, I thought, I thought he was black. Um, but the idea is, uh, he, he, some people would say he's not black because he doesn't share his father was from Kenya. You know, his mother was white. His mother was white. The yeah. idea is that he doesn't have share this black experience in terms of uh, enslavement, see. segregation, <clears throat> oppression, uh, exploitation of communities that come out of the, the diaspora. So there's all these debates about what black means and people have come up with various ways kind of um, conventions for using capitalization to indicate this. I, I think it's it's very it's difficult because on the one hand, you want to kind of acknowledge and abide by these conventions. On the other hand, the problem is if you start to capitalize and not capitalize, it sort of becomes uh, unmanageable because you're, you're, you're reading, let's say, some 10th century Muslim jurist or 11th century mm-hmm. Muslim historian in Baghdad or Cairo or something, and he says someone's black, and you're like, do I capitalize this or not? I mean, I don't know what what do they mean by this. I mean, if yeah. I if I capitalize or don't cap, you know, then I might be imposing my reading of what he's trying to say onto something that he might not mean. So what I say in the book is, you know, if you're if we're going to talk about like black British or black American, we'll talk about you know capital B capital A right black American. Yeah, if we're talking about uh, blackness as like a as, a as a modern construct that we're discussing in the context of, of race and everything. I use uh, capital B, mm. but generally I just default to lowercase because mm. otherwise it becomes you know you sort of you you end up backing yourselves into corner yourself into a corner and yeah. forcibly interpreting for the reader something that maybe the reader should be able to kind of encounter uh, yeah. unmediated. Okay, well, from that from that very sophisticated theoretical analysis of the the dilemmas of how we capitalize words, uh, I, I want to go to perhaps another extreme. In, in my experience at um, Speakers Corner uh, here in London, um, this occasional bear pit of a place, don't necessarily recommend it. Uh, a lot of Muslims go there. A lot of uh, Christian missionaries go there, and they're not main terribly mainstream. They're quite that they're, they're definitely anti-Muslim. Uh, they all are actually. I, I've, I think it was one exception uh, who wasn't anti, wasn't polemical and hostile. And uh, and a, a, one particular issue uh, amongst a number, one that came up repeatedly, um, still does sometimes, is um, what you call in, in your book the the so called uh, raisin headed hadith. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to quote it because I'm not actually sure. Well, you say that it comes in different va- variants anyway. It's not like a single hadith. Some do mention the raisin-headed hadith words, others don't. Um, but it's in Bukhari as well. But the accusations of anti-black racism in the Sunnah is the point here. And um, now, personally, I don't, I don't have an issue with it. I mean, what I think is not really the point. But how, what, is, what is the most likely wording of this hadith? And why is it problematic? And how do you respond to it? I mean, is it an example of racism? From the prophet himself yeah um uh, so i mean i think so the, the hadith itself it occurs in several variations mm. uh, the general uh, uh the, the pretty consistent part is that you should 
obey your commander. So it, it's in the context of um, of essentially like being in a, on a military campaign. Right. right. So obey your commander, even if he is. So some versions will say like an a, 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 a mutilated slave, like a slave who's had his like nose cut off or ears. This right. is something you see in the kind of Byzantine tradition, actually, that sometimes slaves would be like mutilated, like have their nose parts of their ears cut off. Hmm. Uh, and then some versions say, you know, even if he's an Ethiopian slave. Right. And then some versions say, even if he's <laughs> an Ethiopian slave who ha who's Rasu Kazabiba, his head is like a raisin, right? right. So uh, the, the, the general meaning of the Hadith is very clear. It's not really d disagreed on, right? Which is that says that Whoever is your commander, you obey them. It doesn't matter if they're someone you think is socially higher you or socially lower than you. Even right. if it's the lowest person in the society, this kind of mutilated slave, if they're in charge, you obey them. Right. This was then interpreted, extended kind of analogically to apply to any kind of official in authority. So um, one of the, the instances in which the Hadith is actually transmitted and the, the main transmitter of the hadith, the companion Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, he settles after the death after the death of the prophet. He settles at a place called Rabada, which is like kind of a if you if you were go on the the, the the trail from Mecca, Medina to southern Iraq, you would pass. It's sort of like a station way, and it's where also where the all the zakat camels, the camels who were collected from for charitable tax, were were pastured there. So he lived there, and. He, uh, one of this, uh, a like an official under the Umayyad government is brought out to, uh, or the, the Muslim government is is brought to, is there like assessing for taxation, and the the official is a, a an Ethiopian slave whose whose job is to do this, right? So uh, the the prayer time comes, and the. You know, everyone's like, okay, Abu Dhar has seen, you know, very old, you know, companion of the Prophet. They say, you should lead us in prayer. Mm. And Abu Dhar says, no, like you, the, uh, the gesturing to the Ethiopian slave official, he says, you, you should lead us because the Prophet said, you know, yeah. obey your commander, even if he's mm. Ethiopian slave, right? Mm. Um, so he, uh, he kind of, he, he, he's almost interpreting this indeed. You can, see, and so that becomes, used well not just that but just the general meaning of the hadith is generally it's understood to apply to any official who's an authority you obey mm. them even if they're someone you think is lower than you okay mm. now let's put that aside that's pretty simple the other the, then the issue is uh so everything about the hadith is fairly straightforward except this one clause which appears yeah. in one actually very rare narration of the hadith this narration is in sahih bukhari but it's bizarre because it's not in other books. It's and it's it's mm -hmm. actually not the most reliable narration of the of the hadith. If you were to get all the different narrations of the hadith, the part that has the clause that says his head like a uh, his head like a raisin, that is actually a minority clause, right? So this is specifically in one version. It's right. not the most reliably transmitted version. It's in Sahih Bukhari, so there's no people don't really debate its authenticity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But if you were to, you know, if you were to say, like, look, uh, we have lots of different versions of this hadith, which is the most reliable, it would not be. It would be the least reliable version. Okay. No. Well, but but let's, but, you know, uh, no pre-modern scholar that I know of and no modern hadith scholar that I know of has ever 
argued that this clause is somehow false or has been added in. So let's deal with it. Right. But but indeed, but and, and you say to continue uh, in in the book that uh, in the early centuries of uh, com hadith commentators, this was not understood. This particular clause or the whole hadith in any way is pejorative, in a negative way at all. It was only much later um, that it was understood with perhaps more racist yeah, so or in the early, overturns. The earliest descriptions uh, of scholars in like the 900s and 10 hundreds. Mm. Uh, they just say, um, you know, oh, it just means that, for example, um, you know, Ethiopian people's heads are like dark, you know, their skin is yeah. like dark color, like a raisin. And they also say that uh, they, they talk about the, um, the texture of like tightly coiled African hair. They right. say it looks like peppercorns. So if right. you have... Um, it, like it looks like a bunch of peppercorns like yeah. together they the, the texture of the like the outside the kind of wrinkly texture of the peppercorns yeah. so they say that the it's the color and the texture of the raisin is like the texture of their hair mm -hmm. they just they just say like this is what the prophet means and then they move on they don't have a, a problem with it um incidentally i mean i should add right now that it's it's actually it's hard to okay so if you look at how African Muslim scholars use this hadith, it's the same, right? So they don't have, um, you know, let's say like scholars like uh, Muhammad Bello, the second ruler of the Sokoto Caliphate in what's now Northern Nigeria. Um, uh, people like uh, his father, Osman Donfadio, died in 1817, the founder of the Sokoto Caliphate. People like um, Muhammad Amin, Sheikh Muhammad Amin al-Harari, who just died a few years ago, who's actually Ethiopian, right? So he's not just, he's, he's actually the exact yeah. ethnicity that's being described. Yeah. In the hadith. None of them have any, they don't ever say anything about the Hadith that in, indicates that they're, they consider it to be like offensive or something. They just, in fact, uh, Muhammad Bello and Mosman Donfodio, they just use it, they actually use it in instructions to their commanders, like in how, mm -hmm. to, how to act on campaign. So what but what does happen roughly in the the sort of 1200s 1100s 1200s amongst hadith scholars <clears throat> who are living from kind of in the kind of Cairo uh Syria greater Syria kind of Iranian world is you see a shift to a much more pejorative language right so what they'll say again they don't they don't they're not trying to say anything pejorative, but what the way they read it shows much more of a kind of social openness or contextual openness to a negative meaning. So they'll say things like his, uh, the reason why the prophet is using this example is because, you know, uh, Ethiopian black slaves are the sort of the, the most, uh, 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 disregarded sort of lowest rung of the social ladder, They'll say that they're, you know, that um, they're, the smallness of their heads has to do with like their stupidity, their lack of reason, um, their ugliness, right? So you get a lot of like just kind of a lot more negativity. Whereas the, the early commentators, they're just like it's color and texture and that's it. And they don't really go into it anymore. So uh, there's definitely after the 1200s and that really continues into the you know, essentially uh, early modern period or maybe even to the modern period, depending where you're looking, 
that the this the negativity really it's becomes much more pejorative and you see kind of the reading into uh much more reading into the 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 stereotypes about ugliness and stupidity um and lowliness associated because i i know this is purely subjective but i i know some ethiopian uh brothers in london i, I would never ever think they were ugly or stupid i mean it's just i'm just wondering where this idea comes from it's it's not obvious that this would be something that could be said uh, um and even the raisin head thing um, maybe I need to go look at some Google images of raisins, but I just <laughs> doesn't, it's not obvious to me that this is uh, a connected description either. But hey, I mean, so you say I mean, here, here's the thing. Like, I mean, you. So what's interesting is I remember I was reading this French ethnographer mm. did a study on this um, in the 1960s on this uh, oasis in Algeria, and she talks about the describing the hair of some of the people who live there she says it looks like peppercorns which i thought was really i was like wow like this is a person coming with the same description of peppercorns not raisin but right. um i would say that it's interesting right the um one of the the kind of pitfalls of this sort of, of looking into the past is that we tend especially on issues of race and blackness <laughs> there's kind of been this globalization of American conceptualizations of race and what it means, not just kind of globally today, but actually kind of retroactively imperially into the past. So it's sort of Western, you know, it's like American cultural conquest, not just of the present, but of the past, which is kind of well, horrific. Right. And so there's always this idea that what blackness means to Americans is somehow what it means to everybody in the past, which is, or the present, which is just totally untrue. So one thing you find that's very interesting is, and by the way, this is the same thing with Herodotus. Herodotus talks about the Ethiopians being the, the handsomest people. The, oh, does he? Right. Okay. The handsomest race, right? Interesting. Um, so then what's interesting is there's a book written in the, the 1500s, the late 1500s by a uh, Medinan scholar named Ibn Abd al-Baqi, mm. who's actually a, a khatib, like a, a guy who gives the, 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 the the sermon on the Friday sermon at the prophet's mosque in Medina. So um, him, you know, you can see in his work, in other works from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s from the Hejaz, including foreigners who go there, like Snukogronia, the Dutch foreigner, like this one Scottish traveler, Bruce, who travels there in the 1700s trying to find the source of the Nile. They all note, they all say the same thing and they note the same thing, which is the people in the Hejaz are absolutely obsessed with Ethiopian women. And by Ethiopian, they mean both kind of Horn of Africa, so Ethiopia and Somalia. Mm, yeah, yeah. These are the considered the most beautiful women, and they're they're obsessed. So this one guy, Ibn Abdul Baki's teacher, he's writing all this love poetry about Ethiopian women, how much he longs for them, and he has like some concubines for Ethiopian. And he's so, it's so bad that he also has also has to write a poem to his wife, apologizing for his obsession with um, <clears throat> women. So mm. on the one hand, you, you could say, well, these people are definitely not ugly, according to Hejazi men from the as far as I know, the 1500s, pretty consistently from the 1500s to the 1900s. Okay. Mm -hmm. On the other hand. Ibn Abdel Baqi in his the the same book, right? I mean, he has a whole section about the beauty of Ethiopian women, and then he moves on to how ugly Zanj women are. They're ugly, 
they're stupid, they're lousy parents, they're dad. I mean, just, 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 just so what is Zenj? Zanj for him, and the general way it's used in its in kind of Arab Islamic civilization, is it's people from further south on the East African coast. So kind of you can imagine kind of Ethiopia and Somalia, and then you're going south down into you know Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, that area, right? That those the people brought in from the inland on and on the coasts. So these people he sees as completely different, and mm. he considers them extremely ugly. And this is very widely held in, in kind of Islamic civilization uh, in the medieval to the early modern period, roughly from North Africa across through the Middle East into Iran and northern India. Very common opinion. But the reason I bring this up is you see like that this something that we in the U.S. would just categorize as black, uh, yeah. that for someone like Ibn al-Baqi are two totally different groups that he has absolutely diametrically opposed assessments of in terms of their beauty yeah no that's absolutely that's, that's very fascinating actually I, I think we have to uh, uh, ask the question just for the record in case anyone is unaware what did the prophet muhammad upon whom be peace teach about race and what really matters to god because he did teach yeah. things so, yeah, what, I mean, what is, so it's, it's very yeah. i mean the, the quranic rule is very simple right akramakum and allahi atqaqum the most noble in God's eyes, is the most noble view according to God is the most pious, the one with the most taqwa. When, of course, we also have the Prophet saying that, you know, that in his famous farewell sermon, the Arab has no virtue over the non Arab, and the non Arab has no virtue over the Arab except by their deeds. And the black and the, the black and the red, which is interesting, we can get into that if you want. He's the black has no, person has no virtue over the red. And the red has no virtue over the black ones except in their deeds. So, so what, is, what is what is red? Sorry, because I, I actually don't know yeah. what is red in the modern. Oh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. <clears throat> so early Islamic Arabic and kind of pre-Islamic Arabic, as far as we know, if you're going to use a bipartite division for people for their appearances, so two like you know two groups, you have black and red. So mm -hmm. and most scholars would say that Arabs were in the black group. So the Arabs would link lump themselves with Ethiopians, Southern Indians, and everyone like that, right? So they would say we're black. The Reds would be people who are like lighter skinned from maybe the North and the Mediterranean, kind of Syrian, Anatolian populations, right? So that's how uh, they said uh, white, uh, black, and red. Um, which is interesting, by the way, because when you go back and you look at um, like let's say ancient Egyptian artwork and even some of the pre-Islamic Arab depictions of, we have some like at Qariyat al-Faw uh, from roughly uh, maybe 200 or 300 AD 300 of the common era place it's about kind of south uh, east of Mecca uh, there are some wall paintings and it's the same as the way Egyptians are portray themselves in kind of ancient Egyptian art that we all know about right mm -hmm. uh, they they draw themselves a red color, almost like an ochre color. So they and they call themselves red, mm. whereas they'll portray like a Nubian or an Ethiopian as literally black colored, like this book color, or mm. sometimes a, a kind of light, a brownish color, a lighter black. Mm. So um, it's interesting that you know this idea of 
considering what we might think of as like an Arab or Middle Eastern phenotype being more red colored than anything. Mm. Uh, then, okay, but what's also interesting is when that's not very common, right? So the, generally when Arabs talk about, uh, they'll either, pre, early Islamic Arabic, pre-Islamic Arabic, you either have the bipartite division of red and black, or you have a tripartite division of black, white, and red. Black being very dark-skinned, including <clears throat> or dark-skinned Arabs. Uh, mm. White would be the, a, sort of what we think of like a Mediterranean complexion, uh, which is interesting because who came up with the idea of saying white people was the Romans. The Romans mm. used the word albus to talk about a Mediterranean complexion. You and I, Paul, would not be white for ancient Romans or for, you know, Republican or early imperial Romans. We would be what's called pallidus or candidus, which means pallid. We're basically pallid colored. We're not white for in the Roman um, kind of taxonomy of, of phenotype and color. But the white, kind of that idea of a Mediterranean look is what also what the Arabs meant when they said white. It's sort of like, so the prophet, Islam, was described as white. Exactly. This is, I was just going to yeah. ask you on that very point because it has caused some controversy in terms of, so um, he wasn't really an Arab I mean, or something because he's described as white. What that means yeah. is he sort of has like a, you know, medium olive tone, a kind of, right. a, you know, sort of a Mediterranean picture, kind of an Arab or Italian or Greek Anthony Quinn, let's go. <laughs> I feel like that's how Anthony Quinn, you know. Uh, he, he played, did he play Hamza in the, the message, the film, I mean? Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, I don't know. He, he also played Auda Abu Tai in Lawrence of Arabia and Zorba oh, the yeah. Greek and God, and another guy in, in uh, Allahumma Sayyid Muhammad in um, Guns of, of Navarone. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if how much makeup Anthony Quinn. Had. Well, this is true. He could have been heavily made up. But yeah. Think of Anthony Quinn and all those movies. And that's probably mm. a pretty good, you know. Mm. But I mean, the point is that he's sort of he's a Greek and he's an Arab at the same time. So that's that's white to black, white and then red, which, again, is sort of like a, a lighter skinned Mediterranean person, a lighter skinned Persian person, mm. uh, Turks, Byzantines, Russians. What's interesting is when Muslim geographers start to either travel to or hear reports about mm -hmm. Northern Europeans, people like uh, the British, Celts, Irish, you know, Irish, Irish people, they just it's like off the radar for them. They don't know. They're like they say they're red colored. They say they're blue colored. They have this stringy uh, red hair, stringy. Blonde oh, no, but that, well, that might be because uh, the Celts sometimes were portrayed with wearing blue uh makeup I, that, may, that might be it but i my guess is and I, I don't know for sure my my guess is that it's if you you people who look really really white light skin you can kind of see their veins the blue oh, their veins yeah, a lot yeah. that's my guess uh mm. but, I, but you you the woad thing might be it. I, I'm, I'm gonna go for the woad thing it's I, I prefer it because it's a more exotic explanation yeah i mean but uh, yeah mm. that's an interesting question so mm. so uh now, what's interesting is, as well and very important is that I just mentioned that when early Islamic, you know, kind of Arabs of the time of the prophet and early Islamic Arabia, pre-Islamic Arabia, if they're going to talk about people's looks, they'll say either red and black and black as the divisions or black, white and red. Mm. If they use black and white, they don't use it for people's appearances. So black and white is a metaphoric. Right. Right. It's metaphoric. Uh, it means noble and ignoble. 
so, so if you so when this when this term is used in the crime and the sun and so on are people exactly. with races yeah not to understand that as a racial classification then it's not no no if, if you say in the quran it talks about for example when people hear news of their that they have a daughter their face is blackened on the day of judgment there will be faces that are blackened and faces that are whitened yeah uh this is not this doesn't mean they suddenly look like an african person or they suddenly look like, you know, David Bowie or something. This isn't, that's not what this means, right? This, and Muslim commentators are very clear about this. First of all, they debate whether or not it's just totally metaphorical and not physical at all. But in the case, let's say, for example, in, the, in this world, it's obviously metaphorical, right? Because it's not like your face gets dark or colored when you get bad news. If anything, you might get lighter colored and blood drains out of your face. But the in the in terms of the afterlife when the believers their faces are whitened and the disbelievers their faces are blackened what they say is this is this is obviously the whiteness of nobility and ennoblement before god and the blackness of perfidy and kind of debasement before god and what if if they even do if they say it's physical what they'll say it's a uh sawad yukhalif uh right so it's blackness that differs from any kind of blackness in this world it's it's like a it's a an otherworldly color that is not related to phenotype like it's not like people everybody who you know again it has nothing to do with black and white in this world and what's really interesting is when you go to let's say famous arabic poet arab poets who are writing in the 800s like uh, al-mutanabbi uh, who and at this time, right when their commentators are writing in the 900s and 1000s, by this time, you know, anti-blackness has become common uh, amongst uh, Muslim scholars from mm. Iraq to Iran. In that time, it's mm. it's they they've been influenced by the same kind of anti-blackness you see in the rest of the Mediterranean world, which we we can discuss later if you want. But what's interesting is even those scholars who are culturally primed to see black people as lower and white people as higher. When they, when someone like Al-Mutanebi uses saying like, this guy is black or this guy is white, they don't interpret it. They'll, in their descriptions, they'll say, oh, he means noble and ignoble, right? So that, that, that the, the strength of this notion that black and white as a distinction is really something that is first and foremost metaphoric, right. that, that, mean, that, that uh, persists even after anti-blackness has become rampant right that's interesting um I, I when i read chapter four of your book islam and blackness i, I didn't realize uh, when i started on the first sentence i didn't realize it was a quote and that maybe that's deliberate the shock value the chapter is entitled the western narrative of islam slavery and anti-blackness and the chapter begins i'll just read the first couple of verses i'm going to say a couple of sentences the Muslim slave trade was 200 times greater than the American slave trade. Moreover, while Westerners had fought to an end slavery globally, Muslims continued to buy and sell human beings. White guilt, it would seem, was uncalled for. And then you say, so tweeted the Canadian far-right identitarian Stefan Molyneux in 2018, not long before he was banned uh, from the platform. And... Uh, Absolutely right. So um, the question really is about the, the Barbary uh, slave trade uh, in part. Um, and this also it has a theme that's come up at Speaker's Corner and certainly on social media as well. 
Uh, I'll just read a, a sentence from Wikipedia, which I looked up earlier about this. The Barbary slave trade, it says, involved slave markets on the Barbary coast of North Africa, which included the Ottoman states of Algeria, Tunisia and the Sultanate of Morocco between the 16th and 19th centuries. European slaves uh, were acquired by Barbary pirates in slave raids on ships and by raids on coastal towns from Italy to the Netherlands and Ireland and southwest Britain. As far and as far north as Iceland, I didn't know that, and into the eastern Mediterranean. So this is like a huge, almost global uh, slave trade. So in terms of Western uh, narratives on Islam slavery uh, and anti-blackness, I mean, this what is going on with the Burberry, the Barbary slave trade, and uh, and why is it? Why are you talking about it in your book on Islam and blackness? Yeah, well, I, it's very important when we think about the way in which this notion of Islam is anti-black, uh, how this idea comes about, and how mm. it's why it continues so strongly. And what I say is that it's. Um, it can could be traced back to, I'm going to say four uh, or three or four kind of root causes. I'll list the root causes and we'll count how many I listed in the end. So the first one is this idea, which is very present in Western Europe uh, from France, Spain, um, England, and then also uh, in the American colonies of the Northern United States what becomes the United States, right? This idea that um, Islam and Muslims are, so Islam is a slaver religion and Muslims are slavers. So this association. Now in this case, it's enslaving Europeans. So yep. what happens is from roughly the 1500s until really the early 1700s is kind of the heyday of this, of the Barbary uh, slave trade, is um, that uh Pirates, uh, raiders operating out of, you know, um, uh, Tang you know, Algiers, especially Morocco, uh, Tunis, to a certain extent, are capturing French, Italian, British and American ship ships and capturing the, the crews and the passengers, if they're passengers and uh, e e keeping them in slavery, usually for purposes of ransoming them. Right. So they want to ransom them back to their families uh, for money. Uh, so that's the Barbary slave trade. And this is like a, you know, this is a real issue. One guy who is a famous guy who is, um, remember that's what Robinson Crusoe in his story, he talks about, uh, being, um, in fact, I think maybe even the author was captured at one point. You, we can look that up or the viewers can look this up. Robert Lloyd Stevenson, the author, I'm trying to remember who the author No, I, what the hell, who the hell is the author of, um, cause I haven't actually read the book. Robinson Crusoe. Anyway, I'm forgetting who's, who wrote this book. Uh, anyway, so that, but yeah. uh, it's a very early novel. So it's much earlier than Robert Louis Stevenson. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the um, uh, John Smith, the guy who's one of the founding figures in the J Jamestown colony, was also captured by, by pirates. Right. Um, now, these Muslim pirates, these raiders, are, it's a real cause of fear in the kind of public yeah. imagination. Yeah, in yeah. fact, the song uh, Rule Britannia. You know, oh, yeah. Britannia, Britannia rule the ways. Britons never, ever will be slaves. What is it talking about? This is actually talking about the uh, be, being powerful at sea and then not being enslaved by, by being captured by the pirates. Right. And what, but what, okay, so this is very important. And this persists in popular imagination until, I mean, until the, the present day. You know, you can, I have a list in my appendix in my book 
of all the movies, including some movies in the 1990s and 2000s that have totally extraneous scenes of white women or white, especially white women mm. being auctioned at these North African slave markets. Um, uh, this is today. It's like a vestigial, but in some of the earliest, the one of the earliest genres of films, uh, were, uh, was the, it's called the Sheikh genre where white Europeans, especially women, get captured and sort of romance slash seduced by these sheikh figures, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's this very mixed up, like there's a lot of, you know, you could put kind of British and American culture on the couch for some analysis here because on the one mm -hmm. hand, they're terrified of being captured. On the other hand, there's, there's like, they're terrified of falling in love. Another thing, by the way, really is there's a lot of obsession with the idea that um, Muslims will sodomize you. This is a mm -hmm. huge theme in this Barbary narrative is that you're going to get sodomized by right. the, um, the, the Muslim captain. It's a little too, there's a little too much focus on it, in my opinion. Okay? So <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist. Or psychologist. No, but um, in our post-Freudian era, it's impossible not to uh, yeah. see deeper so reasons. What happens is this. Right. Just to say, it was Daniel Defoe. I just looked it up. Yeah, 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 increased yeah. at 17, 19. So you're much earlier than. Uh, the person I mentioned, yeah. So what happens is, uh, mm. by the what's interesting though is by the early 1700s, the strength of the Royal Navy and of other European navies has actually turned the table. So after that, it's actually more Europeans, ship European pirates and raiders and ships who are capturing Muslims <laughs> in the Mediterranean. And there's a very you know uh, a brisk trade in slaves of Muslims from Morocco and Algeria and that area being captured at sea and sold as slaves in cities like Naples, Genoa, up through the mid to late 1800s, Gosh. or the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, really kind of you know healthy tr trade of slaves being Muslims captured on at sea and brought and sold as slaves, usually domestic for domestic slavery in places like Naples and Genoa. So the but what, what i'm trying to say is that this becomes it transforms from a reality into this kind of phantasm it, that it that is both that remains kind of an, a potent part of the european mind mm. a Western European mind an american mind until the present day mm. yeah. their board games their novels their films their everything the, what, what's interesting is not only do you have a, a, a genre of people writing really their own experiences kind of coming mm. back and saying my time as a bar captivity in the barbaries and on the barbary coast but it also becomes something where you make where people write fake ones so you get people writing these best-selling stories of how i was captured especially Brit british or american women how i was captured by the by these moorish slavers and they're horrible, like black African slaves, and that they're made up there. So this is like, there's a hot market for this. So that's yeah. one important <clears throat> origin for this. The second is, so we we'll say, well, what does that have to do with blackness? Okay, here's the second part. When the, uh, after the abolitionist movement, which is based mainly in Northern United States and Great Britain, really yeah. has its big victories in the early 1800s in the 1830s, in 1807, with the end of the Brit uh, British banning on the slave trade in most of the British. You read all about it in your other book, by the way. A very interesting read that. Yep. In the 1830s, with the, the prohibition of slavery in Britain, 
and mo many of its colonies, not all. Colonies. Oh, not all. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, is attention starts to turn amongst abolitionists to non-Atlantic slave trade. So the Atlantic slave trade has been uh, crippled, ended or crippled significantly. Then they start talking about, okay, they say there's two kinds of slavery. There's the Christian slave. They say it was incorrectly called the Christian slave trade. It has nothing to do with Christianity, but Europeans did this. We've now stopped. The other type is the Mohammedan slave trade. And mm -hmm. so for the kind of Europeans and Americans thinking about slavery globally after the 1830s, the only other show in town for them is what they call the Mohammedan slave trade. And so this is, of course, completely inaccurate. It's not inaccurate to say that Muslims were engaged in the slave trade in, let's say, trans-Saharan trans or across the Red Sea or in the Indian Ocean. Yes, of course, Muslims were involved in this. No one's denying that, right? But the idea that it's only Muslims doing this is totally incorrect. <clears throat> you know that inside, in, there's all these intra-African uh, kind of circuits of slave trade, uh, whether it's from what's now like northern kind of Nigeria down to the southern coast of places like Ghana, mm. or whether it's Christian, uh, the Christian emperor Menelik II in Ethiopia in the late 1800s, who's expanding his state and capturing and enslaving uh, other Ethiopians and non-Ethiopian Africans. And, and so this is a Christian ruler who's doing this. Mm. But the point is that from this point on, from really the mid 1800s onward, you get the idea that the Arab Muslim slaver, now their other target is the black African, the peaceful right. black African native who's just, you know, and, I, and this is not my idea, but this is how it's portrayed. You know, they're out and, you know, dancing and doing various noble savage things and then the evil arab muslims come in and enslave them remember well first of all what are some of the most successful early films tarzan movies mm. in, the 19, in the 1920s why in edward rice burroughs uh novels and in the movies why is tarzan there why is his family there that they can be washed up on the coast and he can grow up and be raised by whatever the, the tiger or the monkey or the gorilla right why is it? His hmm. family is part of an anti is is part of a, the British effort to end the Arab slave trade, um. right? So now you have a new theme, a new story, which is the white uh, British and Americans who've come in to help save the Africans, the Black Africans, from the evil Arabs, the evil Arab slave traders. Mm -hmm. Okay, then you add here's the third root cause. Mm. Where both of these ideas are now kind of um, bubbling in the Western cultural imagination, the kind of vocabulary of Western European and American culture, Arab slavers, Arabs as slaving and slaving black people. If you're if you're a conservative who's trying to claim the kind of moral high ground of Western civilization or its its sort of role in the vanguard of human moral perfection or moral advancement. Mm. This is a great way to kind of shift the blame. So you can say, yes, we were engaged in the slave trade, but we repented. We tried, we, we tried to end slavery. The Muslims never did. The Arab Muslims are they they never repented. They're still doing it. This is what the Stephen Molyneux was doing. And, and by the way, he's just one person. If you just Douglas Murray says the same, he said the same thing on Bill Maher's show after the book 
Press. He came on the show and said this. You can find it if you just go look at kind of these more conservative or sort of West is best, West supremacist figures in, in the public in public life. They will regularly bring the, the, up the idea that the Muslims, the Muslim slave trade was equivalent to the Atlantic slave trade. And, it, and unlike Europeans who realize it was wrong, Muslims have never realized it's wrong, right? You, so you see this over and over again. Um, in fact, and I go into this in some detail in my book, mm. it's not, uh, it, it may be true. It's very hard to calculate, but it may be true that from around 700 AD until 1900 AD, uh, that, slightly more people were removed from Africa um, than uh, by Muslims uh, than were removed from Africa by Western Europeans. But one has to remember that the Western European slave trade is basically, you know, three centuries, roughly three, um, you know, essentially three and a half centuries. Whereas, so you're talking about three and a half centuries worth of enslavement compared to uh you know 12 centuries you know 1200 years or 1300 years so the intensity and the violence of the um european slave trade is i think is not comparable and it's, it's far more severe than the uh, very these various kind of muslim islamic slave trades and of course then there's all sorts of problems about calling anything like muslim slave trade islamic slave trade. what does that mean i mean mm. uh uh <clears throat> What does it mean if somebody is, you know, somebody one day becomes Muslim and they're still a slave trader? Is that now the Islamic slave trade? Uh, mm. Some of the people engaged in the slave trade are local African potentates. I mean, this was very common. You didn't go. It wasn't like these raiders went in and just started grabbing people. Uh, they would go and buy them from people who had already captured them or who were selling their own uh, uh, members of their own communities. So I'm not I'm not trying to say that you know Muslims have no blame or Arabs have no blame and all this. By the way, then Arab slave, slave raiders from the Gulf, for example, would go to Zanzibar in the 1800s, and they would just start raiding the Zanzibar island and taking Muslims. They would start taking the local Muslims as slaves, and this is something that the the Sultan is and local communities extremely angry about, and writing protest letters like you can't these people come from like what's now UAE area kind of Persian Gulf area come down and raid and taking people who are who are Arab speaking Muslims as slaves. So it's a very complicated. Um, anyway, so the point I want to make is that uh, you have this idea of the, the Arab as slaver and Arab as enslaving blacks and the Arab as the kind of unrepentant, uncured uh, slaver is very useful for conservative Western conservatives who want to push for like a West is best um, Western superiority to others narrative. Now, who then picks us up? The fourth very important kind of source for this, not temporal source, but in terms of who's driving it, like who's really revving this engine and keeping it going, is uh, Israeli public diplomacy. This is, I mean, I someone might say, oh, here he goes. Elders of Zion, Protocols of Elders of Zionism. Yeah, you call it Zionist. Uh, yeah, you mentioned this. Yeah, this is not Zionist, uh, Israeli Zionist and others. Yeah. Yeah, this is well documented. This is yeah. I didn't go and document this. This is well documented, right? That the role of uh, Israeli public diplomacy, either by American Zionists or by Israelis, in one, Islamophobia, the propagation of what Nathan Lean calls the Islamophobia industry. Two, the narrative of, uh, anti, of Muslims as anti-black. 
a lot of films that have these plots are produced by Israeli producers. They're produced in Israel with Israeli actors, right? Um, the why? So why would someone? Why was? Why is this? Just, yeah, the question is why. Yeah, so what? What's, what's the, the political reason? That Israel was one of the earliest supporters of the South Sudanese liberation movement in the 1960s. It's it allows you to break the solidarity. The kind of first of all, Cold War, Third World, non-aligned movement, colonized world movement of solidarity between colonized people. So black Africans and Arabs, maybe North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, right? You break the solidarity between them by promoting the idea that the Arab North and Muslim North is a predatory slaving force on this on the, the real Africa, right? Quote unquote, the real Africa. Then another thing is they'll highlight anti-blackness in in middle eastern arab society so they'll say and you can see you can see this you know it'll come out every couple of months you, you don't have to go back and look in history just wait around and watch uh for discourse online when you have someone like uh muhammad um i forget his name um Oh, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, every time there's like kind of effort or, or by some kind of black American thinkers or writers to talk about solidarity with Palestinians between like black, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and Palestinian mm. lives, they'll you'll see in like Jerusalem Post or something will pop up an article saying, oh, how do you have solidarity with Arabs when they think they call black people slaves and, you know, Saudi Arabia and Palestine, these are all you know, places where they treat black people terribly. So there's a, they'll, um, you'll, you'll repeatedly see this idea of Arab mm -hmm. society and Arab culture as anti-black brought up in Israeli media, in pro-Israel media in the West to fragment or fracture the possibility of kind of black uh, Muslim or black Arab or black Palestinian it's solidarity. It's a strategy, isn't it? To manipulate public opinion uh, with a view to, protecting the uh, what some have called the uh, the apartheid policies of uh, the state of Israel by uh, as you say fracturing Including human rights watch as, as, as referred to it as this yeah but, by, by division yeah. divide and divide and rule basically yeah. by uh, bringing this so and, and this and in like other examples of going off subject but where public opinion is manipulated to reach certain conclusions on events that happen in our world so we, we don't live in a yeah, we're going to be wary of fake news and how we're being manipulated. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, but, but just draw to perhaps draw to a close. But I, I was struck um, by um, a sentence very early on. I was struck for several reasons um, in your book, in your preface, <clears throat> um, and uh, you, you said one comment on social media, however, stuck struck stuck with me. Um, a black Muslim asked me with the sincerity of a Muslim brother, do you know what it feels like to be considered subhuman? And you replied, I do not. Uh, once in the outskirts of Dhaka, uh, as I sat with the family that raised me there, a toddler came into the yard, saw me and started bawling in fear. That is the one time in my life that I've ever felt singled out by my race. And it was more uh, entertaining than uh, anything else, you said. Throughout my life, I have been treated like royalty at home 
and abroad. And I thought, that's very revealing. Uh, and uh, I can actually, in a smaller way, relate to that. Um, when I went to California, San Francisco airport just a week or so ago, um, long queue of people and, uh, and, you know, I was anticipating being interrogated or asked questions and I, I knew what questions they'd ask because I heard everyone else being asked them ahead of me. So uh, what's your length of your stay and what's the purpose of your visit? And I saw people in front of me, people of different ethnicities, you know, one one woman was, was taken away. I don't mean in screaming. I mean, she was you know, a guy, the immigration Secretary guy said, yeah, yeah can you come over here, please? Uh, and, and this person came away and took this woman away for, I don't know, questioning? I have no idea what. And then came my turn. So I was all prepared for questioning. And the whole interview lasted about four seconds. I remember it was like, purpose of visit. I was saying, seeing friends. Uh, how long are you going to be here for? Five days. Off you go. And it was like, whoosh, straight through. And I thought, hang on, that, that's it? You know, uh, and what, why? You see, because I've been told all these stories by Muslim friends of mine, Muslim brothers, who uh, most of them are not white, about the experiences they had had at U.S., immigration and i'm not there's not a point about u.s immigration particularly but same in britain as well and elsewhere and i didn't have that problem and i have never had that problem maybe i will now um uh but uh but your experience of being treated like royalty uh, this sense of effortlessness of just passing through things of being accorded a welcome and it almost becomes norm the normal behavior and it's not the experience of many of our brothers and sisters who share the same views, the same faith, sometimes the same marriages and so on. And yeah. this, this whole notion of white privilege, whatever that may mean, but nevertheless um, comes comes home with renewed force. And I thought in that comment in your book and in my recent experience in the United States, I'm not complaining by the way, I'm glad I, I got through your country's immigration very easily, but I was aware that how different it could have been for some, some people I know. Yeah, I mean, I the sort of the the question is, uh, if you were to, or if I were to be wearing like a shawar kameez and have like a big beard and a you know like a little Pakistani hat on or something, yeah, I think we would get treated very differently. And that's not to say that there's um, that, that that's not to kind of try to problematize the notion of white supremacy. I think or white privilege. I think these are. Sure. You know very well established facts but i think what it means is that this idea of the racial the racial muslim right that being racialized as muslim is not necessarily about your actual ethnicity or your skin color but that there are other signs you send of your muslimness yeah those will also racialize you as a muslim yeah in, in the eyes of the other and i think this is important because sometimes people will kind of be like you know there's no rape. Muslim is not a race. This is nonsense. How can you say this? Uh, and it's, you know, understand where they're coming from because they're like, look, other race is about your kind of your ancestry and how you look and things like this. And, you know, Muslims look like everything and they have all sorts of ancestries. But mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is in the eyes of the, the sort of general non-Muslim public, there are certain signals that mean Muslim. And that if you give those signals, uh, then you'll be racialized as a Muslim uh, and you can't get out of that, right? There's nothing you can do. Uh, yeah. You can't say, you know, to the guy at the border, I'm moderate. I, sure. I, I, I have no problematic views. I'm wonderful. I love baseball. I'm, I'm a Sufi sheikh and I, 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 
matter, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're, you've, you've become racialized as a Muslim. I, that's what mm -hmm. the, this concept of racialization means, is this notion of people reading into you something, people more powerful than you reading into something about you that they make indelible and unalterable. Mm, yeah. Anyway, it, it's a, it was a, a wake up call. Um, perhaps we can conclude there. And uh, this is the book we've been talking about, Islam and Blackness, with this incredible uh, cover uh, by your good self. Uh, this is quite substantial with some uh, very positive reviews indeed from very distinguished scholars and experts in the field on the back cover. Uh, I do recommend it. It's not been out long. Uh, and uh, is, presumably it will come out in paperback in due course, I assume. Yeah, I think so, usually. And I usually try and stuff some extra things into the, the paperback. <laughs> I like when they because they'll they'll send me the I'll, I'll say can I before you do this can I stuff I try to stuff more stuff into the footnotes you know yeah. so the paperback versions of my book actually have stuff the hardbacks don't have they have more stuff more um, data more stuffed in there yeah, yeah yeah gosh and I'm I'm gonna plug another one of your books that's one of my favorite by you is I'm misquoting Mohammed the challenging choices of interpreting the prophet's legacy in the contemporary world this is an outstanding introduction uh, to the whole subject of, of Islam and how we interpret uh, the uh, the Islamic tradition today. Uh, you, you tackle a lot of really thorny issues about 434. We're not going to go then Quran 434. Uh, and, you know, lying about the prophet and uh, when scripture can't be true, these ideas, some people saying no to the scripture because they don't agree with it and hermeneutics interpretation. So it's full, full of history and narrative as well as taking on board complex theoretical questions about how in the modern world we, we understand and, uh, take on board the the scriptures of of, of Islam. So uh, th that's my favorite, particularly for uh, non-Muslims and Muslims as well. We uh, I certainly learned a huge amount from it. So um, do you have any concluding words, Jonathan, before we wrap up? Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, that's all my concluding word. And I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that you sort of let me ram r ramble on and. No, your, your rambling is always uh, edificatory and, and interesting. So uh, once again, thank you very much, Dr. Jonathan Brown, for your time. Uh, I'll put a link to uh, the two books I mentioned, primary ones, I'm Misquoting Muhammad and Islam and Blackness, in the description below. And uh, if you haven't got them, get them both. They're both worth your time and, um, and share them with friends as well. So, salam alaikum. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.